Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Romulo Lolato. Do you want to describe what he's working on? Yeah, I thought also, Preston, this was yet another interesting conversation. Of course, you know, I think they all are. Uh, That's why we talked to these people. But uh, Dr. Lolato is a professor at Kansas State University. He works in extension, and he also does research helping to understand how growers can be more efficient and in producing wheat. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation. Dr. Lolato, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. To kick things off, would you describe to us your background and maybe go over some of your research efforts? Hi, Preston. Yes, sure thing. So first, thank you uh, and Jason for uh, for the invitation. Uh, We're very happy to be here and sharing some of the things that we're doing in Kansas with you guys. Um, So I am originally from Brazil, right? Based on the name there or based on, on my accent, you could probably tell that I'm not from the U.S., <laughs> but uh, I, so I'm basically, I, I am from Brazil, was born and raised there. Uh, we had a family farm where we were growing soybeans, corn, and wheat. Uh, and when, we're, when I was graduated from my bachelor's in agronomy, uh, I took on the opportunity to come to the U.S. and get my master's done uh, in, at Oklahoma State University, working with wheat production uh, there. I went on for a PhD at Oklahoma State University as well. And I finished that PhD on uh, crop science, uh, so really fo- uh, focusing on wheat management to, to, for high productivities. And by the time that I finished my, my PhD at Oklahoma State, there was this uh, position of uh, extension wheat and forage specialist with Kansas State University. Uh, it was open. I saw a great opportunity there. And... Um, so since about August of 2015, I've been in Kansas, uh, again, working with wheat. So my role here uh, in the, with the university is uh, 80% extension. So that means that I'm usually out there with the growers and really talking to them and trying to bring the most update research that we have uh, on management practices to their field, right? So 80% extension uh, out there, usually, right, with few days and and everything else. Of course, with COVID, we have had a challenge there, but uh, we're mostly going virtual now. And the other 20% of my program here at Kansas State University is focused on research. And the way I see this research and extension, I really see it as a cycle. In w- uh, Whenever I'm doing extension out there with the grower, I'm always uh, tuned in for any particular problem that they might have on their production system uh, that might not yet have been studied and then I bring it to my research program where we have uh, several students on board, masters and PhD students uh, working on different problems there. Again, very applied problems because they need to answer questions the growers have. Um, and once those projects bring us enough data that we can start learning from them, then I'll bring that solution back to the growers. So essentially that's what I do here in Kansas, 80% extension out there with the growers. Uh, about 20% research, doing very applied research on management practice to improve uh, productivity, uh, mostly focused on wheat, a little bit of alfalfa as well. Wow, it sounds like you're pretty busy. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned that you grew up in Brazil and grew up on a farm there. Um, just briefly, how does farming in Brazil compare to farming in the United States? Is it pretty similar? 
Um, no, there, there's actually a few pretty large differences there. Um, so as I mentioned, we were mostly, the region where I grew up, we were mostly growing corn, soybeans, and wheat. So you can say that in those terms, in the crops that we were growing, uh, might be similar to some regions in the U.S. Uh, but it was an environment that we were having 80 inches of precipitation a year, so 75 to 80 inches of precipitation every year. So um, a considerable amount of moisture there. Uh, and another large difference that we have as well is that the winters there are not nearly as cold. And so essentially we can grow crops year round. So um, in our own farm, the minimal number of crops that we were doing every year was two. So it was either a soybean spring wheat or a corn spring wheat type of a rotation. But if we were, uh, if the prices were right, we might even plug in a uh, edible bean, like a common bean crop right after the corn before the wheat. And in those years, we might be able to even squeeze like a third crop out, out of there if, if we chose the right maturity. So quite a bit of differences there and maybe some differences in, in disease pressure as well. As you can imagine, 75 inches of rainfall, uh, we were not uh, harvesting a soybean crop without three or four fungicide applications to it. So uh, quite a bit of disease pressure as well. So uh, similar crops, but very different environment from, uh, from especially from the precipitation and temperature standpoint. That's interesting. I've known before that obviously Brazil is a big producer of soybeans. We hear about that a lot. And I just kind of assumed that things were pretty much the same, but that's a big difference in the amount of precipitation. And I'm sure it brings its own set of challenges, like you mentioned, diseases and things like that. Yes, yeah, whenever I first moved up here, it was, uh, it was a, a, a steep learning experience for me to see how growers, especially if we went to western Oklahoma or uh, western Kansas, were growing their crops there with 14, 15 inches of precipitation a year and sometimes doing the wheat fallow system where they have one crop every two years. So it was a, it was a shock to me, but a, a huge learning curve that, that I really enjoyed going through. Yeah, that's very interesting. We were kind of joking before we started this podcast, me and Jason are here in Illinois and uh, wheat's almost an afterthought. We're mostly a corn soybean rotation. I was curious if you could describe for our audience, maybe the, the global perspective of how important of a crop wheat is. Yeah, definitely. So I think whenever we, we think of wheat globally, right, it's, uh, it's one of the crops that have the largest area planted. Now it's not the, the biggest production in the world because the yields are, are relatively low, but uh, as, far as, um, as far as the area where it is grown, right, it, it goes from very low latitudes to very high latitudes and, and altitudes as well. So we have wheat grown and there in, in the southern part of Brazil where it's a sub-humid uh, uh, part of the country and, and even near the coast. And then you come here and you're growing wheat in Colorado very close to the mountains. So from a global pers- perspective, it's, uh, it's one of the most incro- important crops out there just together with uh, corn and soybeans as well. Uh, of course, uh, in the U.S., uh, the, the U.S. is the number four largest wheat producer in the world. There, just uh, just behind, uh, we have uh, of course the European Union ahead of the U.S. and also China and, and Russia as well. But in in the global perspective, as well as in the the U.S. perspective, it's a very important crop. As we go, especially as we go to more erratic environments, uh, environments where we cannot count on that rainfall every year. So we have a much higher variability in, in, in the weather and perhaps less rainfall as well. That's where 
wheat starts gaining area over corn and over soybeans as well for being probably a more uh, drought-hard crop there. So extremely important crop for uh, uh, growing the entire world there from Ethiopia to, to, to Europe. And so I, I guess that kind of gives a broad perspective there. Well, that's interesting. Another another question about wheat that I guess I have. I've, I I know just on a on a very shallow level, there are different kinds of wheat. I know there's soft and hard and white and red and winter and spring and um, all that means very little to me. Could you break that down a little bit for the average consumer or even farmer? Sure, definitely. So uh, yeah, as you mentioned, we have uh, several different types, and, and you know the, that classification varies by country. So, but we can talk about the U.S. classification here. And the first big breakdown that we have is either a spring crop or a winter crop, right? And what that really tells us is that crop, if that crop needs to go through what we call vernalization, right? And vernalization is a minimal number of hours that the crop needs to have under a given temperature. And in the case of wheat. It's usually uh, six to eight weeks where, when the crown temperature, so the temperature in the soil, right, not necessarily above, not in the plant, but in the, in the, at the crown level, about one inch underneath the soil there, uh, is below about 48 Fahrenheit, right? So what does that mean? Is that for a winter wheat, uh, it needs to be planted in the fall. Uh, during this, during the, the, the fall, as the day length starts to go down and temperatures start, to, to drop going into the winter there. It's going to start getting cold hardy and it's going to go through those six to eight weeks of temperatures below that 48 Fahrenheit. And that's going to trigger that winter plant to go into reproductive mode, right? So if it does not have that requirement met, it's not going to move into the reproductive mode and it's not going to produce a viable head. Um, and spring wheat, on the other hand, just doesn't need that. Spring wheat would be more similar to what we have on the corn crop, for example, that is planted in the spring and just uh, with, is developed with temperature and uh, used in the late summer there. So that's the biggest difference on the spring versus winter. Before you go on to the next one, that's really interesting. So I guess I didn't realize that before, but if you were to plant spring wheat in the winter or vice versa, you really wouldn't get a crop out of it. That's a very good point there, Jason. And uh, yeah, so that's the spring and winter, they make it very, very regional. Uh, it's very regional dependent, right? So for example, uh, if we plant a spring crop here in Kansas, uh, we would plant it in February or March. Uh, and I've done that experiment. Okay, we have done this in the program. It, it has a too late of a maturity because it's going to flower when the winter wheat is already finishing grain filling. So definitely it, it really gets uh, uh, cooked in the heat there right it gets so hot during the summer that uh, the spring wheat really use very very uh, limited compared to a winter wheat here now you go to north dakota they can kind of plant both the majority is spring wheat again because they have uh, a little bit milder or much milder environment than we have here in kansas and so they can get by with that spring wheat so uh, some regions like Washington, North Dakota, there, they, uh, uh, Wyoming, they might be able to plant both, uh, but otherwise it's very, very regional dependent. So spring versus winter is more a requirement of that plant, right, to develop. Now, you also mentioned hard and soft, right? And hard and soft, it's more, it has more to do with the protein content of that grain, right? And what's the end use of that wheat? So, for example, if we're talking hard wheat, uh, we can have a hard winter wheat here in Kansas or hard spring wheat in North Dakota. 
uh, is typically going to have a, a, a higher protein concentration. Okay, uh, typically 12 to 14 percent protein concert, uh, concentration, and it's going to be used to make breads primarily. Right, this, this high protein concentration is really going to 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 help um, have a good volume on that loaf of bread. If we're talking about soft wheat now, uh, these are wheats that have a lower protein content, right? So usually maybe seven to ten or eleven percent. It's what we're looking at, and their end use is more to make pastry or cakes like baking and things along these lines soft cookies so really uh, has a different end use there right um, soft wheats are in the us they're mostly grown uh, in the eastern part of the country uh, kentucky ohio north carolina and so on whatever wheat you guys might have in iowa there it's probably soft as well um, it is also grown in Washington, right? So in, in Washington, they also have uh, some soft wheat that is grown out there in the state of Washington. And the hard reds, they are mostly grown in the middle of, in the central portion of the country here in the Great Plains, Southern Great Plains, Northern Great Plains. There's some, some hard types grown in Washington as well. And then I guess the final thing here that, that divides is the color of that, the, the brand, right? The, the color of the pericarp of the seed, which can be either white or red and there's no, really no difference in the the nutritional component there it's just the color but the the white grain for example a hard white winter wheat uh, that's going to be made to use uh, used to make bread now we can make a whole grain bread which is healthier because it has all the natural fibers and minerals from that kernel the entire kernel um, and it's lighter in color Right. If we make a whole grain bread out of a red wheat, it's going to be dark. It's going to be a dark bread, dark red bread. If we make it out of white, uh, it's essentially going to be lighter, just like any your common bread that you buy in the stores. Uh, that's very interesting. I, I know that there are differences just on a superficial level. I know my wife um, does quite a bit of baking, and sometimes she will um, use a different kind of flour for a different kind of product. And I didn't, you know, really know the source behind all that. While we're talking about the, the makeup of the wheat itself, I'd like to just talk briefly about gluten. I know that there are some problems with some people that can't handle gluten. I know there's celiacs and things like that, but just in general, um, has the gluten content of wheat increased over time? And if so, what is the reason behind that? Yeah, that that's, a, that's a very good question there. And I guess before I, before I go into it, I just want to make a Disclaimer here that I, I'm not necessarily studying the, the gluten components of, of the grain, right? But I, I am up to pair with the literature of other researchers who are, who are going over that. And I agree with you, recently it has been an increase in the amount of uh, times that we hear about gluten and gluten sensitivity and, and things along these lines. And that's a serious disease, right? Uh, like uh, we have celiacs that, that are uh, sensitive to gluten and then we have wheat allergies as well. Uh, and non-celiac gluten sensitivity as well. So those things, uh, they, 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 they have consequences to uh, the person who have those conditions and eat gluten. So, so on those circumstances, those, per, those individuals, they, they, they need to avoid gluten, right? Now, the question that you made um, about increasing over time, I think that's a good question as well. And many times we, we, we read that, right? That uh, 
farmers have increased the, the content of gluten in the grain and that's what's causing more people to be celiac now and, and so on. So I think there's a few important points that we need to talk about here, right? One is, um, okay, are we really seeing an increase in the instance of these diseases compared to what we had in the past, right? So I think I, I, I'm not aware of any continuous data that we have in the US, at least relating uh, the instance of this disease on a year-by-year -year basis, right? Uh, but if we, if we assume that that's true, right, that, that we are seeing this increase in the instance of, uh, of celiac, right? Uh, what can be causing this? Has the gluten content increased over time? Uh, and then I guess we, we get into, we need to look back, right? We need to look back on how was the wheat before it was domesticated and even after it was domesticated, but uh, several years ago, like a hundred years ago or so. So we can try to better understand what changed, right? From that point in time until now. So I guess let's uh, perhaps start here comparing our wheat of today, the one that we eat in our daily bread, with what we had, uh, what we call like an ancient type of wheat, right? And by this, I'm referring to some of those species that were like uh, uh, around 10,000 years ago, right? Like um, uh, acorn or emmer or spelt. So they're different species, right? But uh, still, uh, still wheat. If we look and, and we get those species and we grow them today, right? What we see with them uh, is that first they have some very, very small kernels, very small grains, and they are very hard to trash as well. So they will not be very friendly for harvest, right? So that's something that we selected out of those, uh, of those ancient species. Uh, but another characteristic as well is that they have a very, very high protein content, like up to 30% protein content, depending on the, wow. the the species that we're talking about yeah and that, that's like over double right then then what we're talking um, in our current wheat uh, that, that, is, that is grown nowadays okay now let's think why right if we just think of the wheat kernel what's going on in there what what constitutes the wheat kernel the, the wheat kernels we have about 10 or 15 percent fibers there's some vitamins some minerals we have about nowadays right eight 15 percent protein and about 70% starch. And that starch is really what makes yield, right? So the more starch you have in the grain, the more yield it's going to, to, to yield in, in the, whenever uh, farmers go out there and harvest. So we really we want that starch because it is uh, related to yield. So whenever there was selection over time, if we go back to these ancient wheats and compare them today, uh, this is the reason why we have much less protein today than we had before, right? Because um, we have been selecting for starch because that's you. So when the protein content is decreased, or at least as a percentage, uh, is there more gluten in the starch then, or how is that made up? That's a great question here. And then, so we think, what is the gluten there, right? And gluten is actually part of that protein. Gluten is going to make up maybe 70 or 75% of that total protein in the grain. Right, so because we decrease that much, we, we, we have perhaps half the protein in the grain now than we had before, very likely we also decrease the amount of gluten that we have. Now we're comparing to those ancient type of wheats, right? And so um, 
one other thing, right? We're talking about gluten, but if we think of this, uh, there, there's also many people that I have been hearing about these that, well, eating these ancient grains is healthier than eating the, the, uh, the modern wheat and so on. So if we look back in the literature, and there was, there's a great piece that was put together by uh, Rothamsted, some researchers in Rothamsted in the UK, that they compared, they looked for several, several studies comparing uh, wheat, either modern bread wheat or durum wheat, to these ancient species. And what they found is that they were actually very, very similar in their composition. Very similar in their, their composition, perhaps with the exception of uh, carotenoids, that, which the ancient grains had a little bit more carotenoids than uh, the, the modern ones. But, but again, other than that, they were very, very similar. And so uh, I can't really, I don't really see enough evidence that gluten has increased over time. If anything, it would be the other way around, right? Um, so, okay, we compare to the ancient type of crops. What about if we compare to as near as 100 years ago? How was the wheat that we grew 100 years ago different than the one that we grow today? And in that experiment, in that, well, I can give my own personal experience with that because we have had the research here in Kansas where we were testing uh, several, several varieties since varieties released in 1920s all the way to varieties released in 2016. So about 100 years of, of, of gains there. And really what we saw is that um, the biggest thing for wheat happened about 1960s to 1970s, which was with the Green Revolution, right, where uh, in Norman Burlog, where uh, they introduced uh, some dwarfing genes to the, to the plant. So before, the wheat usually have uh, five, six feet tall or even more than that. And after that Green Revolution with those dwarfing genes came down to three or four feet. That was the biggest thing. And it also had uh, thicker stems. And so now this plant is much more compact it can really take up much more nitrogen, uh, right? And so, because it's not going to have the problem of lodging, right? Those older plants, and we saw this in our own experiments here in Kansas, uh, if you're putting a little bit more nitrogen than they can handle out there, they are lodging, they're going to the ground and really nobody likes to harvest, harvest wheat out of the ground. So that really increased the yield potential of the crop and not only the yield potential, but really they stayed wide, I mean, average, went from uh, 10, 15 bushels per acre to uh, 35, 40 bushels per acre uh, all over those couple of decades, mostly because of that effect of that dwarf gene, right? So in the grain, if we compare protein, we have a very similar situation than what I just described with the ancient wheat there. Uh, the crop that was planted 100 years ago, it had more protein than the crop that was planted today in concentration, okay? So as far as the, the amount that is in each kernel, the, the percent. Now, because nowadays the crop yields so much more, the amount of protein that we're taking out of the land is actually much greater, right? I mean, you see in terms of concentration, it has less, but in terms of amount, because the yields are much, uh, are, are much superior today than they were 100 years ago, uh, in the end, we, we end up taking more protein out of the out of the same piece of land. So that's a very long answer to say that I don't see enough evidence that the gluten content has been increasing over the years. Why, right? So why, if 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 it's truly we're seeing more sensitivity to gluten today than we saw before, if that's true, right? It can be because uh, increasing consumption. 
we look back in like 1970s, uh, the average American would consume about 110 pounds of wheat flour per year. And until 2000s, that rose in about 34 pounds, uh, thir uh, 36 pounds actually, to 146 pounds of flour per person per year. So there has been an increase in consumption by the average American. So, so perhaps we're seeing more uh, increasing celiacs and things along these lines because we're consuming more, right? But I don't think necessarily because the gluten content increased over time. It sounds like you've thrown a little bit of cold water, at least lukewarm water on a myth that's out there. And, and there's another myth that goes around that I'd like to, to just speak briefly to. And, you know, I've heard that there's an increase in gluten sensitivity or, you know, whatever you want to call it because of the GMO wheat that's out on the marketplace. What do you say to that? Well, that's definitely a no, right? <laughs> if, uh, for, for a short answer. And the reason is simply because we really don't have commercially available GMO wheats that, that are being grown commercially. There's research on it, uh, but those research, they're, wide, they're very, very secure and protected. So whatever is being researched doesn't leave the, the, the complex where it's being researched. But um, other than this year, earlier this year, Argentina approved the first GMO wheat. Uh, to be produced in Argentina, which is a drought-tolerant wheat or, or supposed to be more drought-tolerant. But it's really not commercially available other than that yet. And even for Argentina to start producing that in a, in a large scale, uh, it's probably going to take Brazil to agree to import that, right? Because right now there's no... Well, Brazil is the biggest importer of wheat from, from Argentina. That's why I'm saying that. Uh, so if Brazil says we're not going to import that, well, then they're not going. They're likely not going to produce that. Or if they produce, they need to keep it internal. But other than that specific case for drought-tolerant wheat in Argentina, there's really no GMO wheat out there. Uh, everything that is being grown, every single variety, uh, it was bred through conventional breeding. Hmm. That's interesting. One other thing I've, I was kind of curious about was with your research in Kansas. What are some agronomic practices that have the greatest influence on increasing yield or maybe have the potential to increase yield? Yeah, so that's, that's what we have been really focusing all of our efforts in the last five, six years here uh, in Kansas. And a um, few different things, right, that we have seen a pretty consistent benefit in our own research. Um, you know, infuro fertilization, so infuro phosphorus. Uh, wheat is extremely responsive to that infuro phosphorus. Um, more responsive than corn, more responsive than soybeans as well, as far as units that you're going to produce out of it um, versus the units that you apply to it. So infurophosphorus have been very, uh, very responsive, especially in a few specific conditions where it's even, I, I like to call it money on the bank, under those circumstances. Those circumstances are late planted. Whenever uh, growers have, for example, a soybean crop that is delayed to harvest and they're going to double crop wheat after that soybeans, uh, definitely considering that in phosphorus being money on the bank. Acid soils, so if growers are planting in soils less than 5.5 pH or something along those lines, that in phosphorus can act as a, as a band-aid really and really improve that early season tillering and, and canopy closure early in the season. Um, and in situations where they're grazing, right? So there's quite a bit of grazing that goes on in Kansas uh, and much more in Oklahoma. About 50, 60% of the crop in Oklahoma is actually grazed. And so uh, those circumstances that improve phosphorus becomes uh, money on the bank as well, again, because it's going to really improve that tillering capacity of the crop early on. 
this is going to show my lack of knowledge about wheat, but so some of the crop is actually grazed by animals prior to harvest? Yeah, so that's a, that's a system that is predominant in Oklahoma, and probably 56% of the acres, and then in Kansas, it's more like 10 to 15%, depending on beef prices and on wheat price. But the way it works is they plant early, right? So instead of planting in October, they might plant three or four weeks ahead of that uh, at a higher seeding rate and with phosphorus. So uh, it's going to really produce a, a considerable amount of biomass in the fall. Actually, some data in Oklahoma shows that if planted early and the conditions, conditions during the fall have uh, available moisture and uh, it's a warm fall that has temperature as well, by December, the crop might have produced up to 4,000 pounds of dry matter per acre of a very high quality forage, up to 30% protein in that forage. So it's a wow. very high quality forage. Um, yeah, and then they, they will release the cattle once the crown roots are very well established. Cattle is going to graze that crop uh, all the way until sometime early in the spring. Then again, once the crop goes through the vernalization, and it's going to start the reproductive growth and the developing heads being start to be pushed up from the crown level that is underneath the soil up the stem uh, that's when we need to remove cattle otherwise cattle up to them cattle only ate foliage right and so there's not really much but you lost there once they start eating the those developing heads then we start seeing up to five percent per day yield loss so so the yield loss becomes pretty steep at that point, they remove cattle and they let the crop grow for grain. Interesting. Then other, other management practices that we have been focusing much of our research here is uh, mostly nitrogen and fungicide. Uh, we, we did a survey of management practice in farmer fields uh, during three years. So we collected data from commercial wheat fields for about 700 commercial wheat fields in Kansas. Every single point piece of data that you can imagine from variety selection to planting date all the management practices adopted in the season all the way to yield. And that type of data that was coming from farmers, right? it was not replicated, but it was a commercial commercial field level. Uh, we were able to find that fungicides and nitrogen were among the most important factors, um, differentiating high higher yielding fields from lower yielding fields. So um, that's why we have been focusing a considerable amount of efforts in our uh, small plot research as well. It's trying to understand that difference, how different varieties respond to fungicide management. So different timings and different uh, number of applications as well. And how different varieties respond to nitrogen. And then in terms more physiologically, do these varieties differ in their nitrogen use efficiency, in, the, in, in their utilization efficiency, right? How um, how efficient they are in transforming all the nitrogen that they have uptaken into yield, right? So we're trying to dissect some of those physiological things on responses to nitrogen and responses to fungicide as well. And maybe a final thing here uh, on, on the management uh, that was interesting was uh, seed, seeding rate, right? I know that for corn, it's extremely important for it to be on the high side of the seeding rates, uh, especially in higher yielding environments. Uh, now, for wheat, we kind of found the opposite. For wheat, we had three years of research in several sites all over Kansas, looking at different varieties and different seeding rates. And in very, very high yielding conditions, where growers got the, the crop planted on time, like we're talking about timely planting, high fertility scenarios, and yielding conditions of about 80 bushel plus, 80 bushel per acre plus, 
we really didn't see a uh, response to seeding rate. It was flat. I mean, regardless where if we had, uh, uh, you, you know, irrespective of seeding rate, 10 plants per square foot to 50 plants per square foot, we saw no response. And that's because the crop has a huge ability to tiller out and compensate for whatever space it has out there in a high yield environment. Now, as we went to lower and lower yielding environments, we started to see more and more response, meaning that we needed more plants out there in a low yielding environment as compared to we, we needed in an average yield environment. And again, high yield environment was very unresponsive. So that was interesting because it kind of goes uh, against what we, our understanding is for corn, for example, that uh, if you have a higher yield environment, you, you want to have more plants out there but really because of the ability of the wheat plant to compensate uh, those, for those low populations, uh, we really haven't seen much advantage of going high in the population in high yielding environments. That's interesting. It sounds like it's a little more, you know, you'd expect it to be more like corn since it's a grass, but in that aspect, it sounds like it's a little bit more like soybeans and that, that has the ability to compensate for some things. Definitely, yeah. So soybeans branching out and compensating for that space if resources are available, about the same concept for wheat there, but instead of branches, it's just tillering out. And just to give an idea there for, for you and for the listener here, uh, in our very low population but high resource environment, each one of those plants actually produced up to 19 heads, productive heads, right? So whereas in a high uh, population scenario, each plant in the, in the very same fertility and everything might only have produced one or two heads. So that's how much, how plastic that plant is and, and its ability to compensate for, for any available resources. Wow. You obviously do a lot of small plot research. So when you do small plot research, how many locations or how many reps do you like to see before you consider your results statistically significant? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Jason. And more and more, I, I'm uh, vouching for the more, the more repetitions we can do out there, the better. And um, so let me take a step back here. It depends on what we want to solve, right? For example, if we just want to see, okay, what's the, what's the effect of one management practice that has a very high effect on you and that effect is very consistent, you don't need that many replications out there. If you're looking for something that might give very, very small differences, right? You might need a lot of replications out there. So uh, to give a practical example here, uh, if we're looking, for example, uh, at uh, the effect of seed treatment, right? We have a project here that was funded by the Kansas Crop Improvement Association that were looking at the effects of seed treatment on grain yield. And that trial we're putting in 10 different environments in Kansas every year. And this is the third year that we're doing now. Um, the results have been consistent so far, but that gives you an, an idea that I want to look at that data at least 30 times before I'm, I, before I'm comfortable with that. Because the yield gain is very small. We're looking at one, maybe 1.5 bushels per acre yield gain from that seed treatment, right? And so because it's such a small gain, we need many replicate, uh, replications out there. Each of those trials might have five, six replications, and they're planted in 10 locations per year during three, four years. Now, if we're looking at something that, um, I'll, I'll give you the example of 2016, right? 2016, here in Kansas, at least, we had a lot of stripe rust, which is one of the most 
uh, devastating diseases that we have for, for wheat nowadays uh, in, in this region, but it's easily controlled with fungicides. And um, in 2016, we had such a high pressure of stripe rust that we were seeing yield gains or yield losses whenever we didn't apply fungicide of up to 20 bushels per acre in susceptible varieties. So in that case, it's very easy, right? I mean, with one or two different environments in a year like that, for something that gives you such a big response like that, it's easier to find that type of response. But again, I know that that's not the typical response that we see every year. So if we put even, even a trial like that, to try to put in four or five locations every year for a few consecutive years, so we can build enough power there. I think what, what I'm getting at, I don't feel very comfortable making any conclusions if I don't have that uh, any study conducted maybe 10, 12 times uh, and responses are kind of consistent. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess one other thing I was curious about was, is any of your trial work done in a larger setting, like larger strip trials? Um, and I guess kind of along with that, is there, have you done any work to understand the similarities or differences between small plot and large scale research? Yeah, that, that's very good. Uh, that's a very good question. And we, we have plots that are done in larger scale. Uh, in those cases, we're working together with growers, right? So we're using their own equipment instead of small plot equipment. Sometimes we do have the issue of uh, replications there, right? Because anytime that you're asking growers to help you something, you either have to really decrease the number of treatments and simplify that, or you, you miss replications on a site, right? So for the most part, what we're in my program, what we're doing on those large type of scales are variety comparisons. So growers like to see those varieties in larger plots. So uh, sometimes it's a full drill for a mile long, right? like 40 feet wide for a mile long type of plots. Uh, and then you have a little bit more variability on that uh, within that plot than we have in, in small scale and so on. So we do some of that. Uh, it's not the bulk of my program, but another uh, type of research that we're doing as well is as I mentioned before, is, is getting this data from the entire commercial field, right? So sitting down growers and really doing a survey with them. Uh, okay, field A here by your house, how was it managed? We've got all the data, all the way to the yield data. Uh, field B, how was it managed, and so on. And so, so we have those three levels of data, right? Small plot research, uh, the larger plots that sometimes we miss replications there, so we might have to have a check street every now and then in that level on the commercial field, right? Some differences there. Uh, usually that small plot data, right? It might be 20, maybe 30% higher in yield than what we might see at a larger scale. Uh, and that's attributed to several different things, right? So, so as far as yield total, it might be a little bit higher. Now we don't see differences in the responses. Okay, so for example, if we're seeing a response in small plot, in, in small plots, we're probably also going to see that response at the commercial level and in, in large plots as well. Now, the, the reason we might have a little bit higher use there, 20, 30% higher use on those small plots are, uh, those small plots, they have a very large border area, right? And that border area, it has more um, resources available. Right, it has more access to nutrients there, it has more sunlight coming in, and so naturally it's going to be higher yielding than those rows that are in between the plot. Uh, another thing as well is uh, variability in the field. Whenever we do small plot research, we try to get uh, a very uniform part of the field 
whether it's a good soil or a, a, a more like a, a poor soil, it doesn't matter it, as long as it's uniform, right? So uh, we have that, that uniformity in, in, in the small plot research that usually we don't have in a commercial scale. And another thing as well that, that might explain those differences uh, is that growers, they are managing several and sometimes several thousand acres. So um, sometimes they might not be uh, uh, very timely in one operation or the other because they have to cover a large area or they're harvesting and their, their fields have spray tracks and things like this. So overall, just at, at the commercial level and at the large plot level, we might see some more variability. Uh, because of those things, right? I mean, a little bit lower yield and perhaps some more variability because of those things that uh, uh, sprayer tracks in the middle of the plots or um, field variability, soil variability, and so on. But yeah, we do see that difference in, in the magnitude. So so probably for if we're uh, harvesting um, 50 bushels per acre out of the small plot, the grower might be harvesting there maybe 40 bushels per acre or something along those lines. So. When you, when you present this information to growers, um, do you see a difference in how they respond to it? I mean, do, do farmers trust the small plot data as much as they trust the strip trial data or, you know, is one viewed more favorably than the other in your experience? Yeah, so um, <laughs> th that's a very good question because even though those two sources of data might show the exact same thing, which is the case in, in our program here, okay? so. We went out and, as I mentioned, did this survey of management practice among commercial fields. We have some very consistent results. Uh, and then we go out and we do the small plot research and the results are outstandingly similar, right? I mean, the, the responses that we see at the commercial scale many times are very, very similar to the, the ones that we see in uh, small plot. But it does seem like the farmers are more interested in the, in the commercial field type of, of data. Right, I think they they believe that kind of uh, I think that data talks more to them. Um, perhaps something that they're more familiar with, and so I say this because it seems like the message goes across regardless of the type of data that we use. But it does seem to get more traction if we're sharing their own data back, right? So if we're saying here these data are from commercial fields here in Kansas, and this is what we're learning from you guys. It seems like their attention is there. At least that's a personal feeling that I have that they're paying more attention and asking more questions when uh, the data being presented to them is either at that larger type of uh, plot or at least um, in, in the commercial field type of survey as well. So that's something interesting that I noticed in, in the last couple of years here. That's awesome. So as a extension guy who, who talks a lot with farmers. Um, I, we have a lot of farmers who listen. We also have consumers who listen to this podcast. Do you have any recommendations on how these listeners can discriminate between good and bad data? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? That's something that we that we fight with every day in, in academia as well. So uh, in academia, and, and I'm sure uh, farmers fight with that even more than, than we do. Um, it's hard to, to give a general recommendation like that. You know, I would try to understand where the data is coming from. You know, how many times is that data actually reflecting, right? Is it a single comparison, uh, one year that increased five bushels per acre, or is it um, 
50 years of that data, site years, sorry, 50 environments that that data was, that product was tested and is reflecting that same fibrous breaker. So those two things are very different, right? Sometimes we see um, uh, results from us, uh, from one replication uh, in, a in one soil type, not really reflect another replication in a different soil type, you know, and so it's important to, to know how was that data collected in terms of, uh, uh, was it, evaluated by somebody who is independent from that product, right? Uh, which I know that you guys do quite a bit of that contract type of work with universities. And so I think that data is, is very valuable. Uh, and how many, how, many, how many environments are we looking at? Is it one comparison only, or is it uh, 15 or 20 or, or 50, right? As, as you guys would have the power to do that in, uh, I guess, a nation scale, right? So. Yeah, try, try to understand where the data is coming from, uh, who collected that, and, and especially how many observations are you looking at when you see a bar chart that has five or 10 bushes break or more from, from a given product there. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was kind of hoping for a, kind of an easy button answer to the question, but it sounds like there isn't one. <laughs> if there was an easy way to tell, there would be probably a lot less misinformation flying around out there about all kinds of topics, including the current COVID uh, situation that we have going on. So I guess we'll just have to look at all those data sources and somewhat decide for ourselves. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a, a better, a better uh, alternative there. So. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about a lot of different things here today, uh, talked about your research and talked about wheat, and it's, it's been a really instructive conversation. I've learned a lot. When we talk about the future, we always like to look to the future. And do you see anything coming down the road in wheat production or just in agriculture in general that you think is really exciting and, and maybe going to change things for the better? Yeah, I really like that question there. And uh, if I would respond to that within the wheat perspective first, right, I think um, probably what I'm most excited with and looking forward to uh, is uh, development of hybrid wheats. Right, so right now wheat breeding is more of a conventional um, uh, type of breeding. But we're uh, back in the '80s, there was some development on hybrid wheats. They turned out to be too expensive to produce. That was left behind, and and now they were able to develop a cheaper alternative to produce that, just like they do with barley in Europe. Uh, I believe half of the area in Europe for barley is already hybrid barley, and so I'm excited with that within wheat because. What we're seeing from preliminary results for the hybrids there is that uh, it's probably going to have a, a stronger tillering capacity. So what we were talking about, seeding rates and, and infertile phosphorus and things along these lines, yeah, those recommendations might change for a hybrid. Uh, and, and that might be to the advantage of, of the producer, of the grower there. So we're looking at, at a more vigorous plant. Um, with a, a new gain there that so far, most of the research is showing 10 to 12%. Uh, gain in yield in a hybrid. So it's not nothing similar to what we have in corn, where that uh, I believe the, the heterosis is really high and much stronger. But uh, but we might see there a 10 or 12% yield bump from those hybrids. So within wheat, I'm really excited with the, the potential for the hybrids. Uh, I think sometime in the next few years, we might start seeing some of the first materials being uh, released, uh, commercially available. And so that's something that I'm excited very excited with within the, the, the wheat side of things. 
And I, I'd like to just briefly interject here. When you talk about, you referenced heterosis and, and maybe you can explain that just a little bit, but in general, that's the, what we sometimes call hybrid vigor or the ability of the offspring to outyield the parents, correct? Yeah, correct. And, and, and so it's exactly that. It's just like a, when, you grew, when you cross two parents, how, how, how much can that the offspring outyield the two parents? Exactly what you described it there. Uh, we don't see such a strong heterosis in, in wheat as we see in corn. But the potential is there, right? The potential is there for a greater amount of healing being produced and maybe a 10, 12% bump in yield there. So that's something that, that we're very excited with and looking forward to uh, the near future there. And I guess, um, Jason, as far as agriculture in general, I think right now the biggest opportunity it lies really on, on big data, right? And uh, that's a that, that that's a buzzword that has been flying around there for for the last few years now. But if we think the amount of data being collected by growers, right, growers who are adopting technologies and and are collecting uh, that data on their own fields as far as spatial variability in the combine, soil variability if they if they're doing the, those types of assessments and so on. So the potential for that, I think, is 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 what I'm more excited with. Um, as I look ahead in agriculture, because uh, think about this. I was talking about this small plot research and going out and doing these 10 locations per year uh, in, in three, four years, so I can build up 30 observations of that, right? Well, if you have all of that data being collected, how many times within a field, right? The, the, the possibilities that we have to learn from that are, are, are huge. And so, I think looking forward, you know, if, if there is a young professional in ag listening to that, who is kind of like thinking what to, where to go with in their career or something along these lines, you know, um, understanding how to process that data and how to make sense of that data, I think is something that's going to be huge in, in the near future as well. So, um, yeah, I guess those are the two main things that I'm more excited with as we look ahead. So, Awesome. Yeah, those are some exciting things for sure. Dr. Lilato, we're kind of coming up on our time here. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us here today. Uh, for the listeners out there, is there a way for them to reach out to you or would you like to, to plug any of, of your work or associations? Yes, definitely. So uh, if uh, listeners are on Twitter, they can find me at KSUWheat, right? So I'm uh, at KSUWheat. That's the same handle for uh, Facebook and for YouTube as well. So uh, we have all those three social media channels that uh, listeners can reach out to me. So at KSU Week, either on Twitter, Facebook, or, or YouTube, and should be able to find me there. So. That was great. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.